The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Wednesday, April the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. If you are interested in knowing more about what is happening in the world of American politics, I would recommend going to 538.com, the politics and sports website founded by pioneering data journalist Nate Silver. That site's name refers to the number of members of the Electoral College, which elects the US president. And its podcast and its articles feature some of the most astute and entertaining analysis of the roller coaster that is the 2020 election campaign. I'm delighted today to be joined by one of 538.com stars, Claire Malone, its senior political reporter. Hi, Claire. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, what I tend to ask everybody, uh, the first thing uh, at the moment is, what's your life like right now? Um, it is a little bit odd, I think, like everyone's. My home is in New York City, but I, I was um, visiting family right at the beginning of the outbreak. So I'm, I'm currently uh, holed up in my childhood bedroom doing work, um, which <laughs> which is a funny thing. But, you know, we've... We're a mostly politics and sports website. And right now, both of those things feel very superficial. So so from a work perspective, a lot of my work life has shifted from covering the 2020 American presidential election to, you know, trying to cover coronavirus and the way it's affecting, yes, American politics, but also American society and inequality and all that stuff. So it's so it's a lot of um, it's a little bit switching my brain to a different thing in addition to sort of being in totally new environs. Although there is a sense, I was listening to your most recent uh, podcast yesterday, that, that you guys were really relieved to just getting back to talking about politics for a few minutes. Yeah, it was it was funny because it felt so, you know, I've been I've been searching for things that on the internet or in, in real life that don't have to do with coronavirus. And even though politics does, does have to do with coronavirus, there is a certain, you realise, oh, some of this is so, it's theatre, it's, you know, it's not quite as substantial as talking about death counts. Obviously, po- politics is serious and has serious ramifications. But, you know, it's you can sometimes be a little bit more lighthearted when you're talking about, I don't know, you know, Joe, Joe Biden hold up in his basement in Delaware kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things, of course, is that this whole crisis and is interwoven with, with politics as well. And one of the things looking at 
you guys from this side of the Atlantic, one of the most striking things is the sort of is the rise to prominence of of governors. I mean, we tend to be more familiar with the the Nancy Pelosi's and Mitch McConnell's of the world because sure. they have more of an international profile. But governors, of course, have incredible power and prominence locally in their own states. But um, they've become even more prominent. People like Andrew Cuomo and Jay Inslee over over the last few weeks, they've in fact probably become the most prominent political figures in the United States. And watching that happen, I do wonder how much of that is just because of the way that the United States is constructed. It's a federalist, uh, it's a federalist system. And how much of that is because there's a vacuum in Washington? It's a great question and one that I think a lot of people are turning over. I mean, first of all, like in the in the American system, people often express, especially in the past decade, express quite a bit of distrust in government institutions, you know, distrust in the Supreme Court, the presidency, all of those things have really taken a huge dive basically since around 2001 or 2000, the 2000 election. Um, so Americans tend to trust their local officials. They might hate Congress as a whole, but they really have high favorabilities for their local Congress person. Um, and so I think, you know, what you see is people in a crisis, almost trusting their local officials more, the idea of regionalism um, being being really strong. And so you feel tied together with your, you know, your governor or your mayor. Um, but obviously, it has a lot to do with the system of federalism in the United States, which I think Americans are thinking more about more than ever. And our, our president is is um, seems to be grappling with live and on uh, national television in these press conferences where he says uh, the president has the authority to shut down states, governors can kind of go to hell, which is absolutely the opposite of our system. Uh, the founding fathers were pretty explicit about um, trying to prevent um, an all-powerful king, <laughs> right, in the executive position. So I think governors have seen the fact that the Trump administration was slow to recognize the crisis, slow to roll out bureaucratic systems that would get states the supplies they need. They have been at points potentially political about their distribution of emergency supplies. Trump has spent a lot of time baiting governors. You know, it's sort of a carrot stick thing where he'll he'll praise a governor and then the next day he'll he'll bait him and say, good luck getting reelected. So I do think, you know, Republican governors especially have been have sort of gone out on a limb and said, the president is wrong about this. We have the authority to do this. Trust us. We're going to take care of you. I mean, you really do think I do think you see a, a vacuum. You know what you said is correct. People are governors are stepping into a vacuum and saying this is scary. The basic you know, social contract of government is we're going to protect you and make you safe. And we're going to try to do that. Whereas Trump is, I, I do think it's a not so veiled, um, you know, worry that he has about his 2020 um, reelection prospects if the economy goes down the tubes. So that seems to be his, the big thing on his mind. I suppose, you know, for every country, small like us or big like you, or we look at the examples of all our neighbouring countries across Europe, this is a real test for a government and the quality of government and the quality of, of political leadership. And I'm not just going to get into a Trump bashing thing here, tempting though that though that might be. There, there really does seem to be a problem here. I was looking at a report by NPR, uh, I think late last night, and they were talking about, I don't know if you remember, it seems years ago now, sometime in the middle of March, uh, Trump gathered together a bunch of corporate leaders right. from Google and Walmart and various other people and made all kinds of promises about things that would happen in terms of test centres being set up and car parks and new websites being set mm -hmm. up. And none of that has happened. Mm -hmm. None of it has happened at all. Yes, I think 
you know, the, the, the sort of central power, emergency power, emergency law that, that the federal government and the president has the sort of the ability to act on is something called the Defense Production Act, which is a Korean War era, essentially war power that gives the United States not only the ability to jump the supply chains and say, we need these tests or we need these emergency supplies sooner than private industry. They can also go to, you know, GM or Ford or 3M, you know, medical manufacturers and say, we need to retrofit this uh, this facility to make N95 masks or ventilators. And we are going to give you the money to do it, but you got to do this. Um, and the, also the third thing that this Defense Production Act does is basically institute order and, and um, centralizes the distribution of emergency supplies, tests, um, information from one place and sort of equally doles it out to the states as they need it, as, as the numbers tell them that they need it. The Trump administration was slow to not only enact that law, but to understand that law. Um, and I think now you see it, it has been sort of taken on. There's sort of a supply chain task force run by a bunch of military guys. But you also see someone like Jared Kushner out in front. Kushner doesn't have experience in, in FEMA emergency management and, you know, in military management. He's a real estate background. Right. And um, I guess he has been given quite a large purview by Trump. But I think we see a fundamental inability to navigate the bureaucracy of this, which is which is a boring, you know, it's sort of the boring seeming stuff of government, but incredibly important. And I think what's been so arresting for those of us who follow American politics is how how shallow American politics has been for certainly the last four year, years, if not longer, right? You know, the 2016 presidential election was was not substantial at all, right? Hillary Clinton had, had thought it was going to be this policy bonanza, but it really came down to who can get the most earned media appearances, who can sort of have the flashiest slogan. And I think Trump Trump's style of politics has really propagated that over the past four years. And to see politics switch so quickly from superficial to substantial, where people are concerned about supply chains and how the bureaucracy is doling out supplies to governors and how we're even talking about the basic idea of federalism, these these really core I- American ideologies, um, is really arresting. And I think we'll, we'll see how the 2020 presidential election plays out. But certainly at this moment, I think a lot of people are thinking about whether or not the government is actually performing its its basic tasks of navigating its own bureaucracy and getting effective outcomes for its citizens. I mean, we've had a huge testing shortage in this country compared to some place like South Korea, where they might know people who are asymptomatic, who have antibodies for the virus. We're still struggling to test people who almost certainly have the disease. So it's it's really been, um, I think, an organizational failure at the heart of it. And we, I mean, we had Michael Lewis, the author, on this podcast a few months ago, and I don't know if you've read his book, The, the Fifth, the fifth yeah. Risk, but it's all about how the, the, the administration, when it came in in 2017, um, that it forced out a lot of the most skilled people in various departments, and in a lot of cases just didn't know what those departments did, replaced them with people who were who were less competent, and therefore setting up what he describes as this fifth risk. You know, one of them probably was a pandemic, and now here it is. Yeah, the, the Fifth Risk is a is a great book, and I'll, I'll give a shill for Five Thirty Eight. We're actually we're cited in there for um, some reporting we did in twenty seventeen about the Trump administration sort of um, hollowing out the numbers in crime reports, the FBI's crime reports. We did some reporting on in the first year of Trump's administration the way they were trying to manipulate government data or shutting down government data sources from the EPA, for instance. 
But I also think that aside, just sort of the some of the political manipulation of numbers, which, by the way, has happened in previous administrations. It's not just a, the provenance of, of Trump. Um, you know, the idea that that things became so politicized in the Justice Department, in the State Department, you saw positions going to people who weren't qualified for them, you know, people leading to depart- departments that they probably shouldn't lead, be the, the leader of the department. Uh, Rick Perry being the sort of big Michael Lewis example, the guy couldn't couldn't remember the name of the Department of Energy when he ran for president, you know, a few years back, and then he he headed it. So I think that there's been a lot of sense that we have um, we have disappointed civil servants in the way that that we we being the <laughs> the American royal we, but the way that Trump um, didn't really take those bureaucracies seriously. That so many things became. You gave me a lot of money during my campaign. Great, you can run this or be the ambassador to this place. Um, even though we probably should have had, you know, a career State Department person in that position. Um, I think Michael Lewis points out a lot of great things that we're unfortunately seeing come to bear in 2020. And the election is coming and it's not that far away. And it's pretty clear now that it's, well, we know for a fact, you know, barring accidents of one sort or another, that it's going to be Joe Biden um, versus Donald Trump. Um, You guys at 538 are in the business of crunching data and uh, establishing probabilities and then presenting them to um, to all of us as likelihoods. There's such a kind of a mess now, isn't it, that it must be far more difficult to to figure out what those probabilities might be. I'm just thinking of one, for example, um, is the question of in what way are people going to be able to vote across the United States in November if there's still you know, social distancing measures of some sort, which it certainly seems to me there still are going to be uh, quite substantial ones in November. What's that going to mean about people's ability to vote? There was a a weird election in Wisconsin, well, primary, uh, plus a couple of other votes in Wisconsin only last week, where it just seemed to me there's absolutely the vote should not have gone ahead, but it went ahead and it was supported by the Supreme Court. Yeah, Wisconsin is a a particularly dysfunctional state. (laughs) It has a quite Republican legislature and a, and a newly elected or relatively newly elected Democratic governor. Um, and it sort of has had for the past few years a really intransigent relationship. I think we're all really feeling around in the dark about what November will look like. I think it's probably right for us to start thinking about what a potentially socially distanced general election would look like. And that would mean an entirely vote by mail general election. A couple of states do do vote by mail, and and so there is there is some precedent for that. There's a lot of debate right now in the American political scene. Well, not a lot. Those who are who are kind of watching the insider part of it, um, Republicans seem to be kind of concerned about what a vote by mail election would mean for their electoral um, success. The argument by the Trump team that they sort of previewed a little bit in Wisconsin, I think, arguing basically that the, the election should be in person, is that if you mail a ballot to every person in the state, you uh, increase the the turnout in the election. And uh, the going theory is that more people would vote, for, more people in America are inclined to vote for Democrats. So if you present them with a ballot by mail, Democrats will have increased turnout and therefore they'll, therefore they'll win. That has not... I mean, Trump Trump said that only Trump, two weeks ago. Trump he just said, said that, that out. Right. Loud. That's not entirely... It's an interesting theory, but the states where that do do vote by mail, you don't necessarily see a, a, a tilt towards Democrats. Um, people who are elderly or white 
you know, white middle-aged people tend to be bigger voters in general. And those vote-by-mail ballots, some people say, kind of favor them, right? You know, if you're an elderly person, you've got time on your hands, you don't want to go to the ballot box, great, you'll do this. And um, there hasn't necessarily been an increased turnout of minority voters or people that, constituencies that we generally think of as democratic. Now, who knows what that'll look like in states beyond, you know, I think it's like Nebraska and Utah. Apologies if I'm if I'm screwing these up. Um, I think there are a lot of question marks about what a national vote by mail election could look like. I think we're probably gonna have to start thinking about it sooner rather than later if it's actually going to happen. I think we're going to have to know that Trump and the the Republican National Committee will fight pretty hard against it. So there's a lot of really big question marks about just the the basic mechanics of a of a vote by mail general election. I will say it's probably better for, you know, if we've if in the quaint old days we were worried about the Russians hacking the general election, voting by paper in the mail is a pretty safe way to vote. But I think there's just that the political climate is incredibly fluid right now. And I don't think we'll know where we're going to be next month, let alone in, you know, six months. Can I ask you just one other question about Wisconsin? Because it strikes me, and I'm listen, our electoral system is not great either. And actually, the way we run our elections is far from ideal. And there's lots of ways it could be improved. And certain people benefit from them unduly. And certain people are not adequately represented. And all that is true. But we the, the blatant gerrymandering in Wisconsin, where <clears throat> I think I'm right in saying that with less than 50% of the vote, 48%, 47% or something like that, Republicans in the in the state assembly were able to get 65% of the seats and the, the, the electoral system was deliberately rigged, mm-hmm. you know, no real attempt to hide it, deliberately rigged to, to achieve that end. And that's not illegal, whereas that is now illegal in Ireland mm-hmm. and it is now legal in pretty much other, any other half-functioning democracy I can think of. I mean, what's what's going on with that? <laughs> Perhaps the most complicated uh, political question in America. Um, I mean, just for just to give the basics for those who who aren't super familiar with American gerrymandering, which why would you necessarily? Um, in 2010, during the, so we take a census every 10 years in America, as does Ireland, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, in 2010, which is the the numbers the, the numbers of state houses and congressional districts are all based on 2010 census numbers. The Republicans did very well during the 2010 elections, particularly in state legislatures. And therefore, Republicans were able to draw the lines of congressional districts to favor, in many cases, Republican candidates. Why is that still allowed in America? Well, the Supreme Court has said that racial gender gerrymandering is, is not permitted, but political gerrymandering is. Now, you could say the U.S. judicial system is far too partisan, that it wasn't always so um, overtly partisan. You could make the argument that it's always been that way. Um, but for better or for worse, we've decided in this country at this moment that racial gerrymandering is illegal, but political gerrymandering is a political problem, not a problem that should be solved by the legal system. So the Supreme Court and and, and higher courts have sort of shied away from um the idea of weighing into politics, They'll, the, you know, the argument is basically, well, why don't you win state legislature, state legislature races and um, get your people back in power? This maybe goes to a broader thing about um, American politics going all the way back to, you know, the 19th century, right? The idea of um, we have, this isn't the first time in our history that we have 
incredibly partisan splits, incredibly regional splits. Obviously, we fought a civil war. Obviously, we have a lot of um, voting legacies that are racial, racially split. You know, even though racial gerrymandering is is illegal, I think there's a lot of you know, in, in some of these partisan gerrymandered districts, there's obviously a, there's a racial split there, right? There's a lot of you try to you might try to put black Democrats in one district and or spread them out. You know, it's um, it's a really intertwined um, thing. So I think a lot of people would laugh at the idea that racial gerrymandering and political gerrymandering are different things. Yeah, I mean, I was listening funny to a member of the uh National Association for the Advancement of Colour People, the NAACP, mm-hmm. talking about this a couple of days ago. <clears throat> and she was saying she her activism went back to the 1960s and the, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement and all that. And she said at that point, when they were trying to force certain states and certain politicians uh, to get rid of the, the Jim Crow laws and bring them to court and winning those cases, many of those politicians were Democrats because mm-hmm. Southern Democrats were the, were the most, you know, the, were the people who benefited most from that. And so that therefore it was nonpartisan. Um, to an extent, at least at that point, but that it isn't any longer because in the years since, since Nixon's Southern strategy and the way that American politics has realigned, that it's much more, uh, the racial divide uh, mirrors the the party divide far more than it did previously. Very much so, very much so. Um, The Republican Party over the past two decades has gotten, as the the US, you know, the US, I think it's by 2040 will be... um, a country that is no longer majority white, the Republican Party has been getting whiter and um, less educated. And you see college-educated people moving over to the Democratic Party. You see, um, you know, I think politics is hereditary. So as as um, the the population of the minority populations grow in the United States, they are sort of hereditary Democrats. So the Democratic Party um, is sort of the party on the rise. If you look at long-term demographic trends in the United States, and if they hold true um, for for sort of party alignment. And the Republicans have run into this problem where um, their numbers, their their raw numbers have shrunk, but their electoral college advantage remains. So this is another, you know, the other the other huge quirk of the American system is that um, you can win the popular vote, but you can lose the electoral college and not become president. And that has a lot to do with, you know, going all the way back to the founding fathers wanting smaller rural states to have sway. A lot of people say in, in a, you know, in a modern superpower, that's kind of a, a silly uh, system to hold on to. But, um, you know, the Republican Party has been an incredibly smart and strategic institution when it comes to um, working the system and playing by the rules that we do have. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the parties are... Um, while, you know, really diverging in education and racial makeup over the past uh, two decades. And, and, you know, frankly, Trump accelerated some of the trends. Trump and I think the fact that we had our first black president probably accelerated some of those cultural splits where, you know, people in the we talk a lot about Ohio, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania as states being filled with white voters who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump in 2016. A lot of that has to do with um, people, people understanding that the parties had different views on race, right? That if you had more racially conservative views, which is perhaps a nice way of saying racist views, you realize that the Republican Party shared more of your policy or cultural views, and if and that the Democratic Party was more liberal on race. So you saw a lot of these. You know, frankly, I think you know your listeners might be. 
um, they might hear them hear them in, in American political reports as sort of the the white union worker, right? Um, the the Reagan Democrat, you know. Um, if you know, I guess I'm talking to an, an Irish listenership. Frankly, a lot of um, white Catholic upper Midwesterners who um, have a who have a traditional Democratic Party leaning, you know, because of, of unionization and because of the kind of jobs that um, white ethics in the early 20th century were drawn to. But then, you know, a lot of a lot of white Irish Americans, for instance, live in and con- lived and continue to live in quite racially segregated parts of the country. So you start to see these really interesting diverging um, cultural once what were once cultural divisions now going into political divisions in a way that that is is a bit new in American life. Because it's quite striking to us. I think we get a distorted view from this side of the Atlantic. And obviously, you know, uh, being a member of Ireland's coastal elite, I feel I feel closer to the United States' coastal, coastal elite. But I think generally it's fair to say that most Irish people still think of the Democratic Party as being something that's closer to, to them in terms of their ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously there's the, there's the Kennedy connection mm-hmm. and there there's all of that. But, I mean, we look at the modern Republican Party, we look at the key people around Donald Trump and many of them uh, um, have Irish names. Very much so. I mean, uh, John Kelly, Trump's former chief of staff, is perhaps the most, I guess, prominent or and most powerful Irish American um, that you saw in the Trump administration. And he was someone who um, kind of made his name outside the military as a person who promoted quite... Um, quite exclusionary immigration policies. Mike Pence, even though he's a, you know, he's an evangelical, his mother, I believe, is Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think this is a really, this is something I think a lot about, is the, um, is why Irish Americans kind of have, have taken on the, a lot of the, this is, this is, obviously, I think Irish Americans, like Irish Catholics, uh, or American Catholics, are, they're, they can definitely be politically split. But, I think tr- there is a strain in um, in white America um, that you know, going back to this, that where where people are um, quite irritated with woke culture, right? Particularly culture sur- surrounding mm-hmm. immigration. So, what you'll often hear is um, people saying, especially when they're talking about immigration. Um, and someone says we're a nation of immigrants. They'll say, "Well, my 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 grandparents or my great grandparents came to America legally, right? Whereas the people who are coming in now didn't do it illegally." I, I believe in immigration, but I believe in rules for immigration. Now, I would say uh, a lot of people lied going into Ellis Island. Um, I was actually talking about this with my father the other day. His his grandfather lied, you know, on when he came from Ireland on. Um, coming to Ellis Island. A lot of people lie when they come to America. Sort of famously in the past couple of months, um, there was a book about Jared Kushner's family and the fact that they also lied to get into the U.S., right? So so mm-hmm. following the rules and, and U.S. immigration is, is, is kind of a tricky thing. But I think let's also go back to racial segregation in the United States. If you look at the places where there are the most Irish Americans, that's Boston, New York, Chicago, there are other cities around the country. But um, when 
the Irish came to America, uh, let's say the late 19th, early 20th century, they were competing for jobs, particularly in the in, as you moved into the 20th century, um, with American blacks who were moving from the South as they were sort of escaping Jim Crow. You saw a lot of competition for the same kind of blue collar jobs. And frankly, a lot of racial resentment that has been bred into Irish America from the very start. Super segregated neighborhoods. Um, I'm from Cleveland. The the sort of quote unquote Irish neighborhood in Cleveland, in Collinwood, um, became a, a black neighborhood. Right, this kind of replacement. You know, Irish Americans first fought for jobs with black Americans, then were part of the white flight to suburbs, and then you kind of you you become part of the American system of um, redlining and racial segregation in the way we live. Um, Can you explain redlining? Sure, redlining. Um, they were. It's. It. It continues to be a policy where, um, frankly, home loans were not presented to African Americans. Um, where, um, where realtors would sh- wouldn't show uh, black families uh, homes in certain neighborhoods. So it becomes these implicit, um, you know, suburb- suburbs or city neighborhoods that are completely white or completely black. Um, Boston, where John Kelly is from, is um, perhaps one of the most racially segregated or historically was one of the most racially segregated cities in America. You know, it's not it's not just a a, a provenance of the South. And so I think um, coupled with, you know, many Irish Americans are Catholic. Um, obviously, the pro-life movement um, has been since the 1980s um, really smartly, um, I don't want to say co-opted by the by the GOP. But that became a really be, to be you know part of the moral majority to be a morality voter in America was to be a pro life voter and obviously um, you know that didn't always go you know the Republican Party doesn't have a anti death penalty stance so it's obviously not uh, lining up exactly with Catholic teaching um, but that became a really important part of American politics and um, I think a prevalent strain in in, in American Catholic house- households was debating whether or not you should stay with the the historic, you know, union, we all had union jobs in the early 20th century and the Democratic Party stood up for us and the Kennedys made us proud by, um, you know, breaking a religious barrier in American politics. And then you say, well, does the Democratic Party represent, you know, my mor- morality anymore? And I think that's a real debate in Catholic America. And then I think coupled with, particularly for Irish Americans, I mean, again, I'm talking to an Irish audience, there's there's a bit of a joke of of right the Irish American coming to Ireland and uh, looking for relatives right and being in feeling this really deep tie to a place that they might have never been to and frankly I think Irish culture and Irish American culture are quite different right the um, the ex you know the 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 migration to North America did a thing where it you know put a lot of us in in um, in a different um, in a different context, and it sort of makes you when you're in this this broad uh, melting pot context, it makes people, particularly I think white Americans, want to say, "Well, I'm not just white; I'm Irish American or Italian American." And here's why that's important. And that stuff becomes in, to go back to the woke culture when people put out the phrase "white privilege." Well, then you'll see people say, "Well." My, you know, my ancestors struggled for things, right? They were poor. My parents were poor, um, all of which is true. But obviously, mm. all of that exists within the American context of even if your relatives weren't here in the 1850s or 1860s when America had slaves and was fighting um, a battle to abolish slavery, 
you remain part of, you remain, a, you, you're a white person and therefore there are certain um, privileges and biases that, that come along with being a white person in America. And so I think that's a really emotional, personal thing for many people. And they resent, I think, a lot of the popular conversation about white privilege. So that's a, like a really complicated thing about <laughs> about No, Irish that's, America, that, that, that's really interesting. They're really interesting. And I agree with pretty, pretty, much, pretty much all of it. And, and, and by the way, that you're absolutely right, I think. There is a thing called Irish American culture, and it's a different thing from Very much so. Irish culture yeah. in, in Ireland. And that's absolutely fine. And it's been around probably for 200 years or so now, and it's developed in different ways and is different now than it was 50 years ago. And it'll be 50. You know. And sometimes Irish people are a bit snooty about that, you know, kind of, you know, green, you know, yeah. dying rivers green and singing Turalurulura and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm not. I think it's a great thing in, in, in many ways. But what I. Just one thing I wonder about it is, you know, the the woke culture thing. We get that. You get that opposition everywhere. You get that, mm-hmm. that culture war thing. But it, it kind of seems like a luxury to me. You know, if you're actually just trying to make your way in the world and you want decent health care and a decent job and to be treated properly in your job and, you know, the local schools to educate your kids well, you know, getting your knickers in a twist about something to do with, with you know, left-wing identity politics seems very tangential. It almost seems like part of the entertainment industry that it has to do with real things in your real life. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a hard question. I mean, it's like, it's an easy question and a hard question. I think so much of, to go back to the idea of American politics has become very superficial in the past, you know, couple of decades. I mean, some of that has to do with um, people, you know, we talk about people voting against their interests. Um, I think we have to recognize that American advertising and American political advertising has been um, incredibly successful. And so um, it gets people to talk about um, cultural splits in, in, you know, emotional ideas about American identity and racial identity um, that that outside observers might see as kind of silly and ephemeral and and distracting us from the real problem. In some ways, that's the whole point. Um, You know, I think you see with like, uh, let's say the the North Carolina transgender bathroom ban a few years back. Mm. Um, If, you know, that that failed as a as a ploy by the um, by the Republican Party in that state to sort of make an election about culture issues. You know, are we going to let transgender people in in any bathroom, um, people kind of said, this is silly. But I I do think that there is, um, on the one hand, identity politics is really important, right? It is important to talk about um, whatever you want to call it, white privilege, institutional racism in America. Those are all huge problems. And, you know, the, the, the trite line about it is it's our original sin, but of course it is. It permeates every, every part of our culture. I mean, you're seeing in America's um, coronavirus crisis, um, people of color are disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Why? Because they tend to live in urban areas or more crowded households. They tend to have underlying health issues like diabetes and high blood pressure that have to do with the fact that they live in neighborhoods that aren't um, near grocery stores with the proper kind of healthy food. Um, And that goes back to redlining, right? The idea that we don't let people live in certain nice parts of a city. And that goes back to uh, just our institutional racism of uh, slavery and Jim Crow. So it's all of a piece and all connected. So 
you do understand why Americans get in these fights about white privilege and woke culture, because we do have this really complicated, you know, people always say the British class system. Well, we have the class system and a, and a, um, a really screwed up system of, of racial hierarchy that, you know, we say in history books doesn't exist, but of co- obviously it exists. Um, so I think it's a, it's a meaty question. You know, a lot of people say we should, we should do away with identity politics, but I mean, isn't all, isn't all politics identity politics, right? You know? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although there is clearly a danger, one which there was a, there was a, there was a trap which Hillary Clinton fell straight into with her basket of deplorables, right. quote, you know, four years ago, which is if people feel that you're looking down on them because you think you're better educated than them or better in some other way than them, that's, you're not going to persuade them to vote for you. Certainly not. And I think that has to do with sort of these, um, we saw this a lot in the 2020 primary where, I think a lot of people thought that the the Democratic senators who were running for office had given too much credence to the liberal end of the party, perhaps the end of the party that was more, you know, heels dug in against Donald Trump. We're in the right. We should have won 2016 and didn't understand as much that there were there's a huge chunk of moderate Democrats or persuadable independents who don't really want to hear about Donald Trump is terrible and his supporters are terrible. They want to hear more about economic issues, um, things like that. And I think Bernie Sanders was this, was this interesting mix of obviously a liberal, obviously a progressive, obviously a culture, you know, a person who um, was for very progressive cultural issues. But Bernie Sanders always wanted to talk about economics. You would ask him on the trail, you would ask him, people would ask him a question about quote unquote identity politics. He would give an answer and then he would say, but let's talk about the underlying economic inequality that, that, that goes into that. And so I think he's a savvy politician in a way that Hillary Clinton wasn't, where he recognized that people, people want to feel united uh, in their, um, well, we can do better economically, you know, kind of. It's a little bit eat the rich, but that works, right? Especially in this time mm-hmm. in American life where, you know, we have more economic inequality than at any point in history. And we had some pretty bad robber barons. So, Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders supporters would probably say that Hillary Clinton didn't get it because she was too embedded uh, in the financial elites. Yeah. And I mean, you can say yes. And you could say, well, she was a senator, of New- senator from New York. She represented the financial industry. But also, you know, American politics is... Um, there's an obscene amount of money in American politics. Um, we might end up having a sort of European-style election this year where the the real campaign doesn't kick off until, you know, three or four months before the election, whatever. But typically we're running, you know, never-ending campaigns. And a lot of our Supreme Court rulings mean that um, how much money you have becomes more important than kind of anything else in a political race. So um, you saw Elizabeth Warren, you know, grapple with this herself, right? Saying, um, you know, kind of railing against super PACs, but then refusing to disavow hers in part because that's how you win. I mean, her initial uh, finance director quit when she said she wouldn't take um, large, large donations because he said, sorry, this is how American politics work. And I think works. And I think, you know, you could make the argument that whether or not you like it, that's true. Um, so it's a it's a hard. I think we have a lot of structural problems with our political system and campaign finance system here. I want to ask you about one other Irish American, Joe Biden, yeah. currently cocooning in his rec room in where is it in Delaware, in Delaware. Or Maryland? We believe, I don't we believe he's in Delaware. Delaware right now. 
<laughs> there he is. Now, obviously, you know, uh, if he was in Ireland, he wouldn't be allowed to go out. The police would tell him to go home um, because it would be against the rules because he's because he's well over 70, yeah. well over 70. So, of course, is nearly everybody else of significance in the American uh, political system these days. Um, I, I've seen people complaining about the fact that he's been pretty low profile and he isn't really kind of coming out firing at the moment. Personally, I think that's probably not a bad idea. I look at other opposition leaders in countries that are in the midst of the coronavirus at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, very often, the leaders in those countries get a get a bump in the opinion polls. There's a kind of rally around the nation kind of an effect. Um, you're probably better off just sitting back and hope the other guy, well, maybe hope the other guy makes a mess of it without it having catastrophic effects in this instance. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Biden's in a pretty good place right now from an electoral strategy point of view because Trump is not doing as well as one might hope in his taking care of the crisis. Um, So, you know, Trump initially had a little bit of a bump up in his approval ratings, but it's kind of evening out now and maybe going down a little bit. Um, And so Biden is kind of letting him is sort of sitting back and letting that ride. I don't think he can do that for the entire election. Um, but I think um, he'll do it for a while more. I mean, we're talking on the day mm. when Barack Obama is due to endorse Joe Biden um, via video um, in our age of social distancing. Um, and that'll be a really powerful boost to Joe Biden. And we'll put him in the news for a little bit. But I think, you know, Joe Biden has he's he has proven himself not to be the most I think he's actually a pretty good um, retail campaigner. He kind of connects with people on a on a human level, but I don't think he's a great television campaigner. And that's the way most the way most Americans experience the presidential campaign. Um, he's you know he he had a childhood stutter, and I think sometimes his public speaking can be um, a bit awkward. A bit um, you know he might, he might say things that are a bit regrettable or not quite how you would want to phrase things. But I think, you know, we now introduce Barack Obama, well-spoken. He and Donald Trump were, were tied in 2019 for being the most admired man in America. Um, make of that what you will. Um, I think Obama's entrance to the, into the race is it's a really powerful surrogate. And it's a really powerful image, I think, to have Obama and Biden next to each other in a time of, of crisis to remind Americans perhaps a bit of you know, halcyon days of if you're a Democrat pre-Trump, if you're an independent pre-pandemic, pre-Trump kind of sideshow politics. And that's, that's potentially a really big asset for Joe Biden going into 20, 2020 general election. I mean, in the in the primaries, the Biden campaign obviously seemed to be floundering for the first, you know, three or four, certainly up until Nevada, it seemed to be in a in a terribly bad way and was performing very badly. But they put all their chips on South Carolina. And then I'm not sure who made the stars align, but the stars aligned very fast in terms of the uh, the, the, the race thinning out extremely fast mm-hmm. and him getting those key key endorsements um, for Buttigieg and Klo- Klobuchar and others. But the campaign itself, from what I saw, the Biden campaign seemed pretty damn unimpressive to me. And I'm not just talking about his performance in debates, but they didn't raise much money. Um, they didn't seem to be particularly clued in with a good media strategy. Would it make, make the Democrats worry for what kind of a campaign they are going to run when, the, when this presidential campaign gets properly up and running? You know, it's funny. You see, you see both critiques of the Biden campaign and plaudits for them having a strategy and sticking to it. Um, so I do think some of his anemic 
fundraising numbers, his kind of lack of cultural cachet, particularly with young people, which is very different from what Barack Obama had, obviously. Joe Biden is not like a he's not a sexy candidate, right? He's not he's not a candidate that is particularly inspiring to a lot of people. And his entire proposal is that he's steady Eddie. He's he's a bridge out of Trump's troubled waters. You you do see people saying and I think to a certain extent this is true, that the Biden campaign understood that a lot of Democrats are moderate, that they don't want to see um, they don't want to see health care overhauled. They want to see a continuation of Obamacare. They, you know, they want a lot more middle of the road policies than perhaps, um, frankly, like cable TV or Twitter will tell you they want, that, that Americans want. And so the Biden campaign had this proposition. Their shorthand for it was Twitter isn't real life. Um, and they stuck to it, right? They um, they doubled down on their appeal to black voters. And so when South Carolina came around on the calendar a few states in after Joe Biden had performed pretty miserably, um, he he walked away with South Carolina because he frankly invested in that state, but had, you know, a couple decades of investing with black political leadership in America. Um, so he certainly knows where his bread is buttered. Um, I do think that there are worries that... Um, Biden is a candidate susceptible to attacks from Trump. Um, you know, he has this lingering problem of his his son and his son's involvement with the Ukrainian company. Um, even though he's he's been cleared of any legal wrongdoing, you know, there is the idea of nepotism, which a lot of people don't like and which is pretty, um, you know, ripe for digging into in a, in a in a nasty presidential campaign. So I think there are lots of worries about Joe Biden. Um, I think his campaign has shown that it doesn't have much interest in reaching out to young voters. I think that's a that's a problem. Um, but they will certainly, you know, amp up their outreach efforts. But also they're they're pretty well aware that young people don't vote as much as older people. So I think there's some calculated risk in all of that. Um, it's a it's not a um, I don't think it's a it's an operation that is is quote unquote movement in, inspired in the way that Warren or Sanders campaigns were. So there's just inevitably less um enthusiasm surrounding it and i think that's what about the kind of aggression even that that bloomberg just with all his money managed to throw at trump in the few weeks that he was actually in the race you know he could do with a bit of that even couldn't he maybe i mean i'm not sure it's biden's style he's quite he's kind of a his whole thing his whole his whole performance is kind of affable joe and so he does kind of get angry with trump and i i mean you might be right he might be a totally different person when it comes to standing on a stage with Donald Trump. He might be, you know, angry, righteous Scranton Joe. Who knows? Um, and that that could very well be the posture he takes because he has he has shown his capacity for uh, getting angry in public, particularly when he was doing very poorly during the primaries. You saw a lot of Joe Biden being angry at campaign events and yelling at reporters and yelling at people in the audience. And that was um, that was different from sort of America's image of Uncle Joe. Um, which we had in the Obama years where he was kind of made a little bit this cartoon character of Barack Obama's sidekick. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they actually, um, obviously it'll be a negative campaign. It'll be interesting to see what rhetoric and what styling Joe Biden puts to that. I wanted to ask you a final question, and it's it's kind of an odd one. Um, it's 
I am fascinated by American politics. I always have been, but I became particularly even more fascinated of it because of the you know events of recent years. I remember a couple of years ago talking to a sort of a distinguished former member of the kind of Irish diplomatic corps and explaining that I listened to things like the 538 podcast and and what they were about. And he looked at me slightly disapprovingly and said, but should you not really be listening to things about European politics because that affects your, your life much more? And I, I kind of, I felt a little bit uh, deflated and I went away and I thought about it and I realised that one of the things that appeals to me about it is this weird burlesque, carnivalesque, quality. It's it's as if, um, I was trying to think of a comparison about it, Jesse. It's as if I'd kind of switched on Netflix to watch that very worthy Ken Burns series I've been meaning to watch for years because I have the time right now. Yeah. But instead, Tiger King is on <laughs> and I watch Tiger King instead. And American politics is kind of like the, you know, the, the Tiger King of international politics, isn't it? And, and the other thing that I think is that it's just, I think if I got in a time machine, I went back and said and talked to myself four years ago and I said, four years time, there's going to be the worst worldwide pandemic uh, in a century. And the president of the United States, Donald Trump, will be comparing his ratings to the Bachelor finale. I would have gone, no, this is some really bad satire. Do you not feel sometimes in this world that you're living in a really bad satire? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, It's it is often theatre of the absurd. Um, You know, I certainly couldn't have predicted this four years ago. So, I mean, some of that I think, though, is like, I'm not, I'm not going to say that America, you know, I'm not going to propagate American exceptionalism as a concept, but I will say Mm. this country, I mean, it is historically unique, right? It is um, multi-ethnic. It's geographically massive. It is um, politically quirky. Um, it is a place that has, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio and then went to the East coast and I never believed in sort of regional stereotypes and still, until I landed and I said, oh yeah, it's all true. Like there, there are pockets of culture, um, that are very different in different parts of the country and that give us different political figures who then kind of rise to power and can do crazy things. And I kind of think American politics has always been, a bit crazy, right? You go back to like, you know, Wild West stuff. I mean, that's not just like a Cowboys and Indians movie tagline. It was really crazy. Um, You know, so I think that this country, even though we do have a monoculture, we do have a political monoculture on some level too, we just have a capacity for, um, and a tolerance for craziness and outsized characters that I do think is, is kind of real. Although, um, yeah, I definitely couldn't have predicted four years ago that 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 we'd be we'd also be sort of saying in the midst of a pandemic, Trump still has a pretty good chance for re-election, which he does. Um, so it's just, I mean, America America is, is legitimately a wild, wild place, and our I think our our politics have have proven that uh, our twenty twenty politics have proven that America hasn't hasn't lost her step on that on that front. On that splendid and yet highly traditionalist note of American exceptionalism, <laughs> we, 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 we will leave it there. Listen, thanks very much, Claire. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that the best way to support this podcast and all our journalism at the Irish Times is to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. You can also find our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, from, from our existing Worldview podcast feed. And like all our podcasts, that's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and all the other major 
platforms and also at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks for listening.